Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS on Air is brought to you by Fertility and Sterility Family of Journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Eve Feinberg, Editorial Editor, Dr. Micah Hill, Media Editor, and Dr. Pietro Bordaletto, Interactive Associate-in-Chief. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of FNS on Air. I'm your co-host, Pietro Bordaletto, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eve Feinberg and Kurt Barnhart. Eve and Kurt, how are you two? Nice to see and hear you, Pietro. We're well. How are you, Eve? I'm good. Nice to see you both. Eve, we missed you and Micah at our last Fertility and Sterility Orderly meeting in Philadelphia, Kurt's home turf. It was nice to get together, talk a little bit about the journal, the exciting things that we've been working on, um, just spend some time together. We're looking forward to seeing you and Micah, hopefully at our next quarterly meeting. We have lots of great science to talk about. This June issue of Fertility and Sterility is jam-packed with just some really cool medicine, but also I think a really interesting set of articles. The views and reviews this month is a little bit atypical. We're talking about statistics in the field of reproductive medicine. This is a trio, really a series of articles that kind of finds the best authors, uh, best statisticians, the best methodologists in our field. And we've asked them to write a little bit about do's and don'ts when it comes to statistics in our field, do's and don'ts when it comes to methodology. I think if you are a consumer of research, this is worth reading because I think it will make you smarter and more critical. And if you are a doer of research, a fellow, a trainee, there are just some absolute pearls in here. Articles from our own Micah Hill, Jack Wickelson's Statistician Extraordinaire, Epping Zhang talking a little bit about Mendelian randomization and genetics, which is an increasing article type that we're seeing in fertility and sterility. Um, just a really great series of articles organized by Rick Legro. I really encourage everyone to take a look. You're going to learn a lot. I know I sure did when I read them. Yeah, this was designed to be a kind of mini tutorial. It's the equivalent of uh, you know a con academy small articles rather than that you can take in small bites about your interest rather than one big long statistics article that you can only use to treat insomnia. Well said. I think you will not become uh, sleepy by reading these articles. These are really well done and I think very applicable to the kinds of research that are happening in our field. So do check them out. Let's jump right into the original articles this month. You have a really cool one in the assisted reproduction section looking at maternal spindle transfer and why there may be a clinical role for it in patients with repeat IVF failure. Thanks, Pietro. So the title of this paper is First Pilot Study of Maternal Spindle Transfer for the Treatment of Repeated in Vitro Fertilization Failures in Couples with Idiopathic Infertility. And I have to say, I'm really excited to talk about this paper. <laughs> it's phenomenal in many ways. So the first author is Nuno Costa Borges with senior author Dagan Wells. And this was a collaboration across Greece, Spain, OHSU, and the United Kingdom. This was a pilot study whose objective was to gain insights into the technical feasibility of maternal spindle transfer applied in the context of multiple, multiple failed IVF cycles. They recruited 25 couples where the female partner was less than 40 and where there was no evidence of male factor infertility. Patients had multiple previous failed IVF attempts that they defined as a range of 3 to 11 and all of these failures were characterized by a pattern of low fertilization rates or impaired embryo development that were attributed to poor egg quality. 
They took oocyte donors with previous successful IVF outcomes, and they matched those with patients according to what they say is standard practice. But I, I actually have a few questions about that. All of this treatment was done under IRB at no cost to any of the study subjects. Study subjects underwent ovarian stimulation, egg retrieval, and M2 vitrification. Donor recipient cycles were not synchronized. On the day of the oocyte donor's retrieval, the donor oocyte was enucleated and the intended parent's M2 spindle was visualized under polarized light and was isolated to minimize cytoplasmic carryover. This carrioplast was then placed in the perivitellin space of the donor egg infused using the hemagglutinin virus of Japan envelope. ICSI was subsequently performed, embryos were cultured to blastocyst stage, biopsied for PGTA, and vitrified. Mitochondrial DNA heteroplasmy was analyzed in the trophectoderm biopsy, the amniotic fluid of the pregnancies that resulted, and then the tissue samples from the children born. For our learners, heteroplasmy refers to having mitochondrial DNA from more than one source. The concern is that when you perform nuclear transfer, that you inadvertently carry over some cytoplasm. Oocyte fertilization, blastocyst development, clinical pregnancy, and live birth rates were all assessed. All gestations were observed closely until the completion of pregnancy, and children who were born were followed up until two years of life. Of the 25 patients who were recruited, they underwent 28 cycles. And again, my point about the oocyte donor is whether this was done with 25 different oocyte donors or if the donors were shared amongst some of the recipients. From these 28 cycles, there were 122 reconstructed patient donor oocytes, of which 75% of these fertilized and 62% became blastocysts, arriving in a total number of 53 blasts from 21 couples and 24 euploid blasts from 16 couples. These 16 women underwent a total of 19 transfers, and there were seven ongoing pregnancies, of which one miscarried at nine weeks, and there were six live births for a live birth rate of 24% per cycle start. Five of the children had more than 99% of the mitochondria from the oocyte donor, and one child who had low mitochondrial DNA carryover at trophectoderm biopsy was found to have 30 to 60% of mitochondrial, maternal mitochondrial DNA present. I commend the authors on this groundbreaking study. I think this has tremendous potential to change the field of reproductive medicine in several ways. I do think that the authors are appropriately cautious in realizing the limitations of this study and that there is so much that's unknown and so much controversy over this subject. I do think it's reassuring that the children to date appear healthy. We don't know the consequences of having mitochondria from two separate sources. But I do think that a few take-home points are worth mentioning before we open this up for discussion. First, I do think it's remarkable that they had live births at all. However, a 24% live birth rate from an oocyte donor is a low number. I can envision a future where the oocyte donor cohort may be split, 50% enucleation with nuclear transfer and 50% conventional donor cycles. Intended parents undertake a huge cost in a donor egg cycle and should be offered the best success. Second, the micro-manipulation here likely requires a lot of skill. As everyone is talking about increasing volume, making IVF more widely accessible and affordable, or democratizing IVF, it seems to be the buzz phrase, 
This is a giant step in a very opposite direction. The embryologist skill set needed is more challenging than either trophectoderm biopsy or ICSI. Third, the child that was born with a high degree of heteroplasmy is very concerning for those that are hoping to use this technology for to prevent transmission of mitochondrial disease. I'm insanely curious, though, to see where this goes. Is this the beginning of a new way of doing IVF? And finally, for all the skeptics out there, I can't help but think back to the many skeptics in the late 70s who felt that IVF was unnatural and the controversy that ensued after the birth of Louise Brown. I also can't help but look at success rates of the past and learning curves to know that this too will likely improve. In the Reflections piece by Paulo Ronaldo and Christos Kutiferis, they end with a cautionary statement. We need to remember that the goal of successful ART is not only a healthy pregnancy, but a healthy child and a healthy adult. Kurt, Pietro, what are your thoughts? I, I was so excited that this paper made it through the process, and it was quite controversial. And I am so pleased with the hard work of the authors and the hard work of the reviewers to get this across the finish line. because. You can look at this paper in so many ways. The laboratory aspects of this are phenomenal. The groundbreaking technology is phenomenal, but also the ethical issues like, why are we doing this is phenomenal. <laughs> and um, you know, do we need to do this is a whole nother question. And part of the editorial phase of this was making sure that we came appropriately to the conclusions. If you, if you really put my geek hat on again, as I said before, this is not a very good paper in terms of like, good inclusion criteria and demonstrating that it works. This is, this is a really um, eclectic group of patients, and it's not really clear who this technique is for. But it is the first time it's been done, and it's and it's quite impressive. So I hope that we can talk about it for a second, you know, but this is the kind of thing where you get once in a while where it really is going to set off a firestorm of conversation. And I applaud, again, the authors for doing this, the clinic for doing this, and also the hard work of the reviewers that really put their feet to the fire to, to make sure they were stating it right. Yeah, I think the authors got it right here in the conclusion section, Kurt. They were very overt about saying that claims of therapeutic efficacy and safety cannot be made at this time. And they're very definitive about there's so much more that needs to be done before this is anywhere near ready for greater usage. So I don't know if it, that was our reviewers who chose to add that or encouraged the addition of that or the authors who noticed that up front. But I think it's uh, we're all like, talking about the same thing. This is really cool. This is really amazing that this can happen. But we're not ready to start offering this to patients at, at scale. And, and I thank you for saying that. I agree with you. And I hope that that is the message that's coming across here. This is great technology, but this is not a paper that should now give license to every clinic to start doing this. Um, and it does not define an indication. Um, and it doesn't define even a benefit. And as Eve said, it's going the absolute wrong, not wrong direction. It's going the absolute opposite direction that many public health people are saying, which is we should be finding ways to do IVF less expensively and to more people rather than focusing all the all the technology and all the money on helping the one person that can't get pregnant. So um, the, the proponents of this. I think there's a lot of that, though. I mean, if you look at uterine transplantation, right, and yeah. the amount of healthcare dollars that are spent helping the one person, and I know we talked about this several 
months back when we looked at the uterine transplant trials, you're spending upwards of a million dollars for one live birth. I don't know what the cost of this technology is. I I don't think it's a million dollars, but it sounds like an extremely labor-intense process with serious implications if you don't do the biopsy and if you don't do the biopsy correctly and you carry over too much of the maternal DNA or the maternal mitochondrial DNA, what are the consequences of that? And I think that given that there was one live birth where there was a significant degree of heteroplasmy, I think we need to learn more about why did that happen and what are the genetics of mitochondrial DNA that would allow that to happen and how does that differ from typical cellular replication before this goes prime time. But as I see it, I think there was a little bit of a mixed message in this. So one of the messages was this can be used for repetitive IVF failure, although arguably somebody who only has three failures may not be in the same prognostic category as somebody who has 11 failures. And then the authors talk about mitochondrial disease and using this technique as a way to bypass transmission of mitochondrial disease, but then they ran into problems with that. Irrespective of that, I really looked at this paper as proof of concept, and I thought that it was groundbreaking in a way that that we really want to progress the field, right? We want to make progress, and this may not be perfect, it may not be ready for prime time, But without question, this has the potential to be progress in a way that we have not crossed previously. Agreed. And just, again, notice that this isn't fertility sterility as really a case report or a case series. This is not definitive evidence that this works. Uh, I mean, breakthroughs like this have to happen, and I applaud them for happening. I just hope that our field interprets it interprets it properly. And all of a sudden, this is now not a technique given to every 40-year-old with two cycles of IVF because they can sell it. Um, you know, this is this is a, a scientific breakthrough that should be treated cautiously. And, you know, it should be replicated, of course, but it it's not yet a new treatment option. Yeah. And one thing I want to, one thing I want to highlight, and for those of you who know me well, you know that I'm a stickler for language. It drives me crazy that people are talking about this as three-parent IVF. Like the lay terminology in that is incredibly misleading and horrible and should not be used. How is three-parent IVF any different in this situation than it is using an oocyte donor? How is it any different than using a gestational carrier? And I think that we need to be really careful to call things what they are. This is nuclear transfer. This is not three-parent IVF. And I hate when I open up my daily Google news search and I get three-parent IVF all over the news. And so I would really encourage people to stay away from describing things in lay terms. Well said. Kurt, let's keep the ball rolling with some other good science in the assisted reproduction section this month. Tell us a little bit about progesterone rescue. Tell us a little bit more about that and why we should be thinking about it in terms of embryo transfer. 
Yeah, this is a this is a good one. I think we're going to have a lively discussion about it. Probably not simply by the findings of this paper, but more the topic because uh, this is a hot topic. So the article is by Stravides and Valos. It's titled "Effectiveness of Progesterone Rescue in Women Presenting uh, Low Circulating Progesterone Levels Around the Day of Embryo Transfer," and it's a, a systematic review and meta-analysis. First, let me say that FNS does publish meta-analysis, even though we have FNS reviews, and I want people to understand that this slight difference. FNS itself will publish kind of focus reviews like this one, whereas um, FNS Reviews is a journal of really kind of a larger big picture. And I hope you'll consider reading both of them and, and learning about both of them. So in this particular one, the goal of this is to identify whether rescue of progesterone dosing in patients that present with low progesterone can salvage the adverse outcomes with, uh, with low progesterone to begin with. So I'm going to pause and do this kind of atypical style. This is controversial in itself, the whole idea about what's the magic progesterone level for embryo transfer. I mean, we all know in general that progesterone is really important, but what I think we argue about and don't know is really what is the threshold, what's the best way to give it, how long. And I want to say that up front because I certainly want even Pietro's um, opinion, but mostly to say that this paper is not answering that question. This paper is really addressing, well, if you do buy the fact that you that a progesterone level is too low and you did a serum progesterone value in your clinical care and you treated it, what happens to the outcome of those IVF cycle itself compared to those that had normal progesterone? So it's a slightly different question. Does that, that make sense, Eve? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's so well said that it is this series of suppositions that if we think that this is important and if we think that the measurement of progesterone really reflects what's going on endogenously, then does normalizing that progesterone level affect the outcome of the IVF cycle? Right. And I'll say it up front, this paper is looking at a number of papers that have looked at this question, and the, the consensus was they looked at a, a threshold of 10 nanograms per milliliter. Again, we could have an entire journal club, whether that's correct or incorrect, but that's what people have studied, and that's what we're summarizing here. So the main outcome is to compare the ongoing pregnancy rates and miscarriage rates and live birth rates um, with patients that have less than 10 nanograms per milliliters and were rescued or those that had 10 milligrams. So this is a big preamble because ultimately the study doesn't tell you much. It basically says that when you combine these seven observational studies, including more than or close to 6,000 patients, you actually find that the, the odds ratio summarizing all of this data shows a whopping odds ratio of 0.98. So what it basically says is you put this all into a blender and you say that people that have a low progesterone that's rescued have the same pregnancy outcomes as people that had a high progesterone. The miscarriage rate was uh, 0.91 and the live birth rate 0.92. So it really confirms what we do in clinical practice, which is if you give progesterone to bring the levels up, you have the same outcomes. What it doesn't answer is what if you left the progesterone alone? That's a different question. So I did find some subtlety to, to give a little bit more uh, conversations. If you look closely at the tables, and I hope you read this paper rather than just listening to me pontificate about it, when you look at the forest plots, there's forest plots for all studies together, and there's forest plots for the route of intramuscular progesterone rescue, and there's forest plots for vaginal progesterone rescue. And if you want to look, take a little more of a magnifying glass to this, it looks like the uh, IM progesterone gives you a, a really right spot on 1.04, and the um, progesterone supplementation gives you an almost statistically significant lower value at 0.93. So 
there's a corollary take-home to this. It looks like if you are replacing it, it, you should be replacing it with IM progesterone and not vaginal. When you put them together, there seems to be no effect, but alone, it looks like vaginal progesterone is not performing as well as intramuscular progesterone. That sounds like a study that we've talked about before. Comments? Yeah, again, I think it's a great paper, and I think it. I really struggle with the idea of whether or not we should be checking progesterone levels in women who are doing frozen embryo transfer cycles. And it seems like an easy thing to implement, right? So should everyone be coming in on the morning of embryo transfer who is on intramuscular progesterone, have a blood level taken, and then adjust the dose accordingly? You know, a lot of the data that's been done prior to this, that this meta-analysis is based upon would argue yes, but I think it's still, the question is really nebulous to me in terms of what time did the woman take the progesterone? What dose is she on? Are all of the pharmacokinetics the same? Does it depend on BMI? Are there different levels for different BMIs? So I really, I, I struggle with it, but I think that some of the original data, and it was really done by Elena Labarda, some of the original data are convincing that maybe this is something that we should be paying more attention to. So that clinical session aside and well stated, let me go back and put my geek hat on. What does this paper tell you and why did we accept it? So basically, it's, it's I want to remind you that we have to be careful of meta-analysis in general. Not all meta-analysis are created equal. This meta-analysis is a meta-analysis of observational studies, and you've all heard this statement, garbage in, garbage out. So even though this study shows there's no difference, and that's a good thing, and it validates our care, we just have to be careful. When you summarize um, multiple observational studies, Remember, Pietra knows this well, right? Every observational study has confounding factors, and not every study is controls those confounding factors the same way or controls the same confounding factors. So when you put them in a meta-analysis, you could have a lot of data that is not controlled for. So be careful of meta-analyses with observational studies. And then my final point, which I've said repetitively, is just remember the message here. This doesn't say that progesterone fixes all things. It just says that if you gave progesterone back, it looks like the outcomes are about the same as if they had normal progesterone. It doesn't answer the many other questions we have, which is what's the right dose? When do you give it? For how long? When do you test it? It's a, you know, it's a surrogate outcome. It's just a level, but it makes for a good conversation and it makes for a good paper. And I'm glad it was printed in FNS. So well said as always. Well, I got the next article. This is a real cool collaboration between some academic folks and the folks at Modern Fertility. This article is entitled Contraceptive-Specific Antimalarian Hormone Values in Reproductive Age Women, a population study of 42,684 women by first author Scott Nelson from the University of Glasgow and Dr. Sharon Briggs from Modern Fertility. I think all of us are faced with this question. We have a patient who's coming to see us. They're on their combined birth control. They have an IUD in place. They just got a shot of Depo and they want to know, what am I... What will freeze look like, Doc? Is egg freezing good for me? Do you think I need to be more aggressive about family planning? And I know I face this question all the time. Well, do we take you off your birth control? Do we have you come back in four to six weeks to check it? Do we just check it now and kind of interpret it with all the appropriate caveats and asterisks? Well, I think this study kind of helps answer some of those questions and helps us figure out what exactly all of this means for our patients. What this study did is it looked at users of the modern fertility home testing between May of 2018 and November of 2021, and as part of collecting their testing at home to look for not only AMH, but also other serum hormones. They asked them about, are you on birth control? If so, what kind? When was the last time you used it? So they have all of this data, and they were able to look at over 42,000 patients 
27,000 of which had regular menstrual cycles and were not on contraception. And then the other cohort was on a mixture of combined OCPs, progesterone-only pills, both hormonal and copper IUDs, as well as implants and vaginal rings. And what they did is they compared what their AMH values were and did some kind of pretty nifty subgroup analysis. Well, here's the big takeaway. I think we all knew this. Contraception does impact AMH levels, period. But let's dive a little bit deeper. It appears that combined OCPs are the most suppressive, whereas progesterone IUDs, for example, or copper IUDs had no effect on AMH levels compared to age match controls. Still, rings, progesterone-only pills, progesterone-eluting implants all had a suppressive effect. And I think that makes sense and jives, I think, with what our clinical experience is. Interestingly, a patient's age didn't seem to matter a whole lot in terms of suppression of AMH. It looks like the level amount of suppression was consistent no matter what your age was. The cool, interesting finding of this paper that I think to me was new was that there were differential suppressive effects of the contraceptive methods across AMH percentiles, meaning the greatest effect was seen at the lowest percentiles and the smallest effect was seen at the highest percentiles. For example, if you're a woman taking oral contraceptive pills, your AMH level was 32% lower if you were in the 10th centile for AMH, 20% lower if you were in the 50th centile, and 5% lower if you were in the 90th centile. Said in a more simplified way, if you're on birth control and you have a normal AMH for your age, your AMH level is going to be about 20% lower than if you were not on birth control. However, if you were in that diminished ovarian reserve category, really a low AMH for your age, that level of suppression could be as high as 32%. But if you're that PCOS patient with a real high lovely AMH, you're going to have little to no suppressive effect on your AMH level, which is kind of cool. And I think for me, it really helped my counseling check an AMH, talk to the patient about what it means, interpret it with the, all the appropriate caveats, thinking about what kind of contraceptive method they're on, what their AMH looks like on contraception. But remember that at the extremes of ovarian reserve, the contraceptive effect seems to matter more on their AMH levels. And if you're thinking about this paper from a counseling perspective, lots of good data here. But if you're a visual person, take a look at figure one. Figure one is absolutely fabulous. It's a really nice breakdown of the AMH levels by age and by contraceptive method plotted against age match controls. So if you're really trying to pinpoint where does my patient fall in and you want to show them something, bring up figure one. It's outstanding. I want to ask you, Eve and Kurt, when you see patients who are coming to you for egg freezing, for example, and they're on their contraceptive method, are you telling them to come off and then check? Are you checking it on and then checking it off? What's your, what's your workflow? So this is a fun paper, Pietro, because it allows me more time to talk to the patient of why are we checking the AMH in the first place. But if we did check the AMH, at least you can say it, normal is normal. And if it's not normal, then let's dig a little deeper. Again, it's fun to publish a paper like this that gives you those kind of clinical caveats. But the real question is, why are we discussing AMH in the first place in someone that's not trying to get pregnant? Well, I think to your point, why is modern fertility advertising AMH as a quote, fertility test. So I won't dive into that. I think like the idea of calling modern fertility, modern fertility is a misnomer. And again, my obsession with language. But I do think that for women who are thinking about egg freezing or for patients who are thinking about egg freezing to be more gender inclusive, that AMH is a really powerful predictor of anticipated response to stimulation. And that's really the only application of AMH as we know. And as we've discussed, it does not predict 
It does not predict fertility. It does not predict time to conception. It does not predict miscarriage rates or worse live birth outcomes with IVF. Or even aneuploidy rates, right? We talked about that a couple of months. Right. Right. You both said that really well. But then the question is, is this paper going to influence the decision to freeze your eggs? It'll tell me how many eggs I'm going to get. That's great. I will say. But 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 that's not how people are using it. No, but this paper (laughs) actually is going to change my practice personally. So typically when I see a patient who's coming in to talk about egg freezing, my response prior to reading this paper was, let's have you go off the birth control pill, call me with your second period off the pill, and we'll do your ovarian reserve screening. Now, after reading this paper, so thank you, Scott Nelson and Modern Fertility for sharing your data, Now what I'm going to say is let's go ahead and let's check your AMH. And if you're at the ultra low level, let's understand that based on these data, it's probably 20 to 30% lower than we fully anticipate it in that situation. Then maybe let's have you go off your contraception and recheck. But given that it's only a small percentage of patients that are going to fall into that abnormally low AMH, I think this paper is actually really useful specifically in the egg freezing potential population to be able to counsel them more accurately on anticipated number of eggs that can be retrieved. I agree with you. I'm, I'm, I'm going to push back people. on you for one second. <laughs> okay, one of you talk. I'm going to call on you. Pietro, you go first. Eve, I'm going to push back on you for one second. You said that you would just go ahead and check it while they're on their contraception. And that's what I do. I fully agree. And I think that get a snapshot in time and start the process of counseling the patient. My question for you is why recheck it if it's low? If you know, based on this data, that it's going to be 20 to 30% better, then it's going to be 20 to 30% better off of their birth control. And if it isn't, it's going to be more similar. What are you going to do differently? Well, I don't know that I'm going to change my dose a whole lot if it goes from a 0.1 AMH to a 0.3 AMH or my counseling, really. I think if, if yeah. you're in the low territory, we're going to have a conversation about being in the low territory. So it. Do it for two reasons. One, just to get a more accurate picture of what you're going to get in terms of number of eggs retrieved. The second is that there are some data showing that particularly at the lower level of ovarian reserve, that long-term contraception may blunt response to gonadotropin therapy. So more than anything, I'm really taking them off in the hope that they stim better. It's not so much I'm taking you off just for that academic purpose of rechecking it, but hey, it looks like your AMH is really low. You may be overly suppressed. You may not have as good of a response to gonadotropins. Let's take you off your birth control so that when you stimulate, you're going to have maybe not a robust response, but perhaps a better response to stimulation. And while we're at it, let's recheck your AMH so that we can use the egg freezing calculator to really counsel you on what the expectation would be in terms of number of oocytes that could potentially be retrieved. Eve, my problem on this is that what you just said is great for the small world of reproductive endocrinologists. This paper is going to be interpreted throughout the rest of the world to everybody else that check an AMH um, and and it's accurate or not accurate because we're all helping you make the decision where you should freeze eggs in the first place, which is where I'm worried is that the, the wrong decision point. Yeah, if they've I, already I come totally to you with the decision. With then then what you just said makes sense, but but we just have to be careful that this is giving too much information to AMH can tell you whether you should or should not freeze your eggs in the first place. Right, right. And I wrote a whole piece on this two years ago that direct-to-consumer testing only helps 
the company that creates the direct-to-consumer testing. And I think that, again, just the name modern fertility, like this really is not a fertility test. And I do worry that if we can say like, oh, it doesn't change on birth control, then it makes it that much more ubiquitous that people are going to be checking AMH. And I think one of the hardest parts about AMH in somebody who's not thinking about egg freezing or in somebody who's just purely checking it is in the wrong hands, I think people get worried about it. And I can't tell you how often I get a text from a gynecologist in my community saying, hey, I checked so-and-so's AMH, it's undetectable. Should I send her straight to IVF? (laughs) And it's like a knee-jerk reaction that I'm seeing. And I actually think sending somebody straight to IVF who has a low AMH is the absolute wrong answer. Tell that person if they're ready to try to conceive, try to conceive. Amen. I, my favorite patient is the young patient with low AMH because the world is their oyster. We found out about it early. We have an opportunity for you to just start your family building. And there are a lot of options available to you for family building with a young age. Right. I mean, what I want to know is what percentage of patients who do direct-to-consumer testing, like where does that fall? What percentage of patients have normal to high AMH? And what is the number needed to treat? How many direct-to-consumer tests need to be sold in order to identify the very small number of patients who are going to have AMH in the sweet spot where intervention is possible and where it may actually alter their family building trajectory. I'll tell you that the mean AMH out of this cohort of 42,000 women who are on average 31 years old was 3.4. Right. And the first standard deviation was 2.7. Right. So again, what is that number needed to treat? And I'm a little disturbed that those data aren't being published. (laughs) And there's probably a very good reason that those data are not published. So I would encourage transparency and publication of those data. Eve, we're going to stick with the topic of ovarian reserve, but move away from home testing and more towards the the kitchen. Soy products, soy isoflavins, what's the deal with that in ovarian reserve? This paper is called Intake of Soy Products and Soy Isoflavins in Relation to Ovarian Reserve, and it was by Makiko Mitsunami with senior author Jorge Shavaro. The objective of this study was to investigate the association between intake of soy food and isoflavones with ovarian reserve. It was a cross-sectional study of patients who presented to an academic fertility center between 2007 and 2019, and they were invited to participate in the EARTH study, the Environment and Reproductive Health Study. And we've reviewed a few other publications from EARTH on this podcast. So hopefully at this point, this study is familiar to our listeners. During a 12-year study, 667 subjects reported their prior three-month intake of 15 soy-containing foods. Participants were divided into five groups based on soy food and isoflavone intake, using those who do not consume any soy as the reference group. Women underwent ovarian reserve testing with an antral follicle count, day 3 FSH, and AMH. The median intake of soy was 0.09 servings per day, and isoflavones were 1.78 milligrams per day. Soy intake was not significantly associated with a decrease in ovarian reserve markers in the crude analysis. There was a statistically significant reduction in AMH among women in the highest category of soy intake, 
though this was not related to AFC and FSH, and the authors therefore believed it was a spurious correlation. And I'm sad that Micah is not here to geek out on spurious correlation. So this one's for you, Micah. Their conclusion was that soy intake is not related to ovarian reserve. I commend the authors. These studies are really hard to do. And I think anyone who's who has ever kept any type of food journal can tell you that these are really hard. I was challenged a few weeks ago to track macros. And after three days, I quit. <laughs> sometimes, likely often, um, there may also be discrepancies in how people will mark down their foods. So as I see it, you can state that soy intake measured three months prior to ovarian reserve testing is not associated with a reduction in ovarian reserve. However, I really question whether we can conclude anything further based on these data. Biologically, to me, it seems like a reasonable conclusion. Soy is not an ovarian toxin. However, I'm going to ask the question, is what you eat over a three-month period of time reflective of your diet on the whole? Is there a critical time point in development where soy could be dangerous, perhaps when a mom is pregnant and the impact of soy on the developing fetal ovaries? I don't know the answer to this. What I do know is that these studies may potentially show correlation, which this one did not, but that still would not equal causation. And I still would argue we should be counseling patients to eat a whole foods-based diet, exercise, and maintain a healthy weight. I don't think you need to cut out foods like soy, dairy, or gluten unless you have an allergy. Kurt, Pietro, what did you think? Yeah, I enjoyed the study, but and it's cliche to say that, you know, not finding an association doesn't mean the association is not there. It just means you couldn't find it in this study in the way you were asking. I'm not proposing it really is there. I'm just, just saying these are these are hard studies to interpret. I guess my bottom line is I'm glad they're studying it and it's 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 reassuring that there is no association, but I don't think this is the definitive answer. I also think that maybe it's a different biologic phenomenon. What they're trying to do, it seems, is extrapolate what happens with sperm. There's a 72 to 90 day cycle with sperm. And I think it has been shown that the three months prior to um, ejaculation may impact the quality of those sperm in the sample. But I don't necessarily know that that's true. And so I, I do question the study design a little bit in that regard. But I still think, you know, look, it's a probably a practical question that comes up all the time. Patients ask what they can do in the months leading up to their IVF cycle to optimize their health. Patients always ask me if they should have a washout period, if they should eat kale, if they should cut out soy. And so I do think that it offers some practical advice to say, you know what, it's actually been studied and it doesn't really matter. So go ahead and eat your soy. It doesn't matter by changing your habits in the last three months. Whether it mattered about your lifetime of health is a whole nother question that can't be answered by the earth study. Correct. Well, Eve, you brought it up. You brought up macros and micros. And Kurt, you happen to have another article in this month's Fertility and Sterility that talks exactly about that. Um, tell us a little bit about the secondary analysis of the Nipper randomized trial. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good segue, Pietro. This is a time to conception and clinical pregnancy rate with myoinositol probiotics uh, and micronutrient supplements. And as you mentioned, it's a it's a secondary analysis of a, a very large trial, the Nipper trial, which was a randomized trial. So the Nipper trial had at least four centers, and 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 eighty three percent of the data in the Nipper trial contributed to this analysis. 
And uh, it basically, the Nipper trial looked at these um, micronutrients and probiotics for the primary outcome was maternal glucose tolerance at 28 weeks in gestation. That was a negative trial. But now they're looking at the same group of people in the trial and time to conception. And the answer is that there really wasn't a difference in time to conception with, with these uh, supplements. We're talking about a difference between uh, 90 days to 92 and a half days. So you saved two and a half days by taking these micronutrients. So that's the bottom line of the study. The, I think it's the the science behind it that was more interesting, you know, that inositol is, you know, in your phospholipid membranes. And there's been some evidence, again, as we just described in the earth study and observational studies that, you know, inositol can um, have has effects in the PCO population. And it, there, there's some loose associations about sperm counts. There's a loose association about infertility. And there's this huge industry of probiotics. Um, and it's something relatively simple to do. And it, it's intuitive. If I could fix something before I get pregnant, or, you know, I can make myself healthy, because now I'm thinking about pregnant, wouldn't that be a wonderful benefit? The short answer is, I think we should still look for those interventions. But unfortunately, this particular one did not have the effect that we hoped that it might have. So you're saying we should just take more of it for longer, and we might see an effect. <laughs> Did I say that? That's not. You sound. You sound like that's what, like someone would say if I was trying to sell this. You know, like every time there's a negative study, people say, "Yeah, but you know, you gave the wrong dose, or for not long enough, or you gave it to you know, the if wrong more people. specific, or the wrong people." Well, wait, right. Kurt, didn't you just say just because you don't see an association doesn't mean that it's not there? <laughs> Exactly, which is why there's going to be 10 other randomized trials on probiotics. And and ultimately, I hope we find one. All jokes aside, that's why I like to see these papers in fertility and sterility, because, you know, a randomized trial is giving you far better evidence, even though it's a secondary outcome of this randomized trial, than the replete literature of, I found an association here and I found an association there. So I, I like the idea. And the reason I like this paper is that we progressed from these, it's not anecdote, I mean, they're, they're observational studies to a randomized trial. And to your earlier point about meta-analyses, you're going to get a much stronger meta-analysis when you do that using randomized trial data than an aggregate of observational studies. Right. And I'm not trying to throw dust on the scientists. You know, inositol and phospholipids and phosphatidyl inositol are probably important aspects of, of egg quality and sperm quality. I'm not saying that this isn't an avenue to study. It's just in this large randomized trial in four countries, unfortunately, it didn't seem to have a positive effect. To Eve's point, I think the benefit of these kinds of studies is that you can tell patients, it's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. It's been studied before, and this is what the data says or doesn't say. Because I'd tell you probably 75% of my patients at the end of my consults ask, is there anything that we should be taking um, in these couple of weeks while we're getting worked up or getting ready to do IVF, supplements, things that we should, should be changing in our diet? I think patients are desperate for something. And I always go back to, the die has been cast. Your ovaries have been your ovaries for the last 30-something years. And it's, I think, naive to think that you're too young in your in your career. You've got you've got to embrace the patient's desire to do something. You can say, look, I we haven't found the magic bullet and we've studied these things, but of course you should change your diet. Of course you should be healthy and try to get pregnant. Everything you do can only be positive. You know, just because we didn't find an answer here, there's no harm in in you know getting a good diet and exercising. So you, you just got to be careful how you spin it. Don't don't crush someone's hopes by these a, negative trials. A, a fistful of well, coke head is what you're saying then, Kurt. No, but I think there's a difference between crushing somebody's hope and prescribing $100 of vitamins that 
ultimately are going to be flushed down the toilet in there. Oh, that's different. The supp- supplements that's, are different. That's expensive it's, urine, right? Yes. yes. <laughs> that, that, I agree with you. you know, selling people a snake oil is not what I'm proposing here, but telling people not to in- engage in positive habits is not something we should go against. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that beyond the likelihood of success, I think that there are lots of data on healthy weight and overall cardiovascular fitness and pregnancy and healthier pregnancies. Yeah. So I, I do think that it's an opportunity that infertility is an opportunity to improve health overall. It may be a window into somebody's health, but it may also be an opportunity to develop better habits. But I do think that there is this whole market that's out there that's extremely predatory on a very vulnerable population. And just because there is inositol in eggs and sperm does not translate to take an inositol supplement for healthier eggs or for egg health. And so often I see that line being crossed. So I think we were cross-talking in what we were thinking, which happens a lot. You know, I was thinking one thing and Pietro was thinking another. I don't know where the line is, but we should be encouraging healthy habits. But I, I agree, we should not be encouraging supplements that are of no use and are just are false hope and cost. I was thinking more of the diet and not the supplement, but that's where I, it came from. Speaking of supplements, I'll point everyone towards, there's a Consider This article in this month's uh, fertilityandsterility.org that you'll see published by Dr. Norbert Gleischer and his colleagues talking a little bit about DHEA as a supplement and its safety. Um, I know a lot of us have patients ask about it. Some of us even prescribe it. I think if you're thinking, if you're in either of those camps, I recommend everyone go check it out. There's some interesting things being discussed there about DHEA. I'm going to make a hard pivot to something that's not micro or macro or supplement related. I want to talk about fibroids. As the resident reproductive surgeon on the podcast, I feel like these articles are mine and I love them. But boy, did this article come close to home. This is a clinical scenario that I get at least once a week. My patient has an intramural fibroid. It doesn't distort the cavity. Do I need to do anything about it before IVF? Hmm. Well, thanks to Dr. Murat Erdin from Turkey and his systematic review and meta-analysis entitled The Effects of Less Than Six Centimeter Size Non-Cavity Distorting Intramural Fibroids on IVF Outcomes, we get a little bit closer to the truth. There's lots of data to suggest that fibroids, even those that are non-cavity distorting, can negatively impact the endometrium. Changes in gene expression, TGF-beta, HOX10A, There's even changes in contractility. The way that the uterus works and squeezes and kind of remodels in early pregnancy can be different with big fibroids. There's even changes to the spiral artery formations from the mass effect of fibroids, a bunch of potential theoretical things that could hurt someone's chances if they have an intramural fibroid. But of course, these are not benign surgeries. Just because you have an intramural fibroid doesn't mean you need to remove them. These are often laparoscopies, robotic surgeries. They're associated with delays in pregnancy of four to six months pelvic adhesions, intrauterine adhesions, and even the need for a C-section a couple of months later when they hopefully do become pregnant. So this is a big scenario that we all face and there's just not a ton of data. And I'll start by saying that this systematic review and meta-analysis only included five articles in which IVF was being performed in women with intramural non-cavity disordering fibroids that were less than six centimeters in size. These five studies had a total of 1,900 women of which 520 had a single intramural fibroid. Two of these studies were prospective, three were retrospective, but of course, here's where you get into the problem. Of these patients, 248 of them had a single intramural fibroid, whereas all of the others had 
potentially extra fibroids, a FIGO4, a FIGO5, a 6, a 7. And this is why fibroid research is so hard. It's very seldom that you find a single isolated FIGO type that you can neatly categorize into a bucket category. Almost always you're dealing with multiple different kinds of fibroids, their sizes and the locations, which is just a real tough situation to study. What this meta-analysis found was that women with non-cavity disordering fibroids that were less than six centimeters in size had a significantly lower live birth rate in IVF. But of course, the certainty of this evidence was really low, and the odds ratio here was 0.5. Interestingly, the decrease in live birth rate was due to decreased implantation rates rather than an increase in miscarriage rates in the overall analysis, which to me is actually an important counseling point, right? Having the fibroid the most likely scenario is that you're going to see it early on. You're going to have implantation failures or you're not going to have implantation of good embryos. But if you do become pregnant, the most likely scenario is that you'll continue to carry that pregnancy and get it to delivery. The question I have, and I'm interested to hear what even Kurt, you do in your practices, is what do we do with these data? Because obviously you can't operate on every patient with an intramural fibroid. That's just not a tenable way forward for our patients, for our field, for their family building goals there's morbidity. It's invasive. It delays time to conception and all the associated iatrogenic risks of surgery. I'll tell you what I tell my patients. With intramural fibroids, we know that we're expecting potential negative impacts on implantation. This is probably from that cell signaling, the contractility. There's something there. The data for that seems pretty convincing. My biggest worry is not so much once I get you pregnant, it's what happens towards the end. Big intramural fibroids, particularly those five, six centimeter size ones, I worry about obstetric outcomes, risks of preterm birth and labor, abruption, risk of C-section. And we've all done those C-sections where you have big fibroids in the way, the risk of hemorrhage at the time of delivery. Those are things that I think don't show up in our literature because they're remote from our primary endpoints, but things that I think are kind of worth having the discussion with these patients. So I don't operate on every intramural fibroid I see, but I become increasingly more thoughtful about which fibroids I operate on when I'm worried about those obstetric outcomes in patients who have already had some of those outcomes, but also patients who have had implantation failures of what are otherwise good embryos or situations where we should be finding success, but we're not there. But all of this is limited by not a lot of great evidence to inform some of this counseling. Yeah, so I think I counsel patients that it may impact success, but I think that the hardest part is that we don't have robust data to say that surgery improves success. So where do you draw the line and how do you make that decision as to whether or not to remove a fibroid? Like, I don't think we have good data that guides that. I agree when I see patients who have intramural fibroids, like I definitely have the conversation about what that fibroid means, what it may mean from a fertility potential, what it may mean from an IVF and implantation potential. But I think what's really challenging is that surgery carries significant risk and not just significant risk intraoperatively, but significant risk in terms of risk to the future pregnancy, risk of uterine rupture, risk of abnormal placentation. And I think you have to carefully counsel these patients to balance the risks against the benefit. And while we have a lot of data showing reduction in IVF success rate, we don't have data showing that myomectomy improves implantation rate in the future. Yeah, I want to follow up on that. I agree with you, Eve, on that. Years ago, when I published the paper, Endometriosis Affects IVF Outcomes, people very quickly interpreted incorrectly that therefore we should treat the endometriosis before we try IVF. That's not what that paper said, and that's not what this paper said. It doesn't surprise me that people that have reproductive pathology have lower pregnancy rates, whether you have endometriosis or fibroids, but we have to be very, very careful that the treatment is not worse than the disease. And while I could 
argue with you about whether you should suppress people with endometriosis with a loop run or not. In fact, there's a trial going on to see if it works. Cutting someone's uterus open has got real significant morbidity. And I would bet if, <laughs> how can the uterus be better after you remove a fibroid that's not impacting the cavity? I, I, I just, I, I don't know. I just don't want people to misinterpret this. Well, let's talk about data. You guys both brought this up that there's no data. There's actually one small randomized study that looked at spontaneous clinical pregnancy rates after myomectomy versus women who kept a single non-cavity distorting intramural fibroid in place. And they showed that in the women who underwent the myomectomy, the clinical pregnancy rate was 56.5% compared to 40.9% in the women who left the fibroid in place. Fortunately, the study didn't, it didn't reach statistical significance. It's a small study. This is a real tough thing to study. But that's the only single RCT that's been done to look at this question. Obviously, not in an IVF population. These are non-assisted conceptions. So there is data singular um, out there, but we need so much more data to actually be able to answer this question effectively and give our patients the right answer. Data are plural. In this case, it's singular. There is one study. Date, 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 does that make it singular? Datum. You would say a data point, one data point. Um, But Pietro, I I don't disagree with you, but again, one randomized study that's not significance that's never been replicated is not evidence that treatment works. We have to be very, very careful. Sometimes we intuitively want something to work and pull evidence to our favor. And I'm just cautioning people to be very, very careful here. The finding is that I'd rather not have a fibroid, not that a laparotomy or laparoscopy is going to make me better. Well said, Kurt. Kurt, we mentioned this last podcast that Fertility and Sterility is now reintroducing this concept of letters to the editor, some of which will be brought into the main journal and some of which will appear online. There's an interesting reply to an article published recently. Tell us a little bit about it. Sure. I'm very pleased that the letters to the editor are back, and I love the scientific discourse, and this is a good example. And I'm not saying that because it was my paper that people were responding to, um, and therefore I get the last word, but <laughs> I'm more saying that I encourage this kind of discussion, and it's a lot of fun. So Marissa Weiss was the first author on a paper that looked at fresh versus frozen transfer using the CDC database and found that using that database, you could actually try to replicate a randomized control trial, like applying the criteria of that trial um, to the database and selecting only patients that fit those inclusion and exclusion criteria, and ultimately found out that that didn't seem to be in effect. Two people wrote editorials saying, well, wait a minute, and be careful about your conclusion there. And the first one basically said, you know, we did that randomized trial and, and your, um, you know, your restrictions on the data to replicate our trial weren't exact. And in fact, you kind of had a, a more high prognosis patient than even our trial. And the second group, Bruce Shapiro and Forrest Gardner basically said, yeah, you know, thanks for the data, but you know, you, you took such a small percentage of the population and also you didn't take into account the, the luteal phase treatment and that can confound things. So both excellent questions and we had a chance to respond to them very briefly in a letter that basically said randomized trials have trouble with with generalizability and to the best of our ability we couldn't exactly replicate the randomized trial and it's true that people in the randomized trial and in our study were very good prognosis patients but the message there is that's what we have to study because there's this confounding by indication where if you extend it to all people in a non-randomized trial, we are inadvertently freezing embryos or purposely freezing embryos in patients that have good prognosis, whereas those that don't have good prognosis, we're not freezing the embryos, whether it's because we're afraid to freeze only one or two embryos or whether it's because we we don't need to prevent hyperstimulation. 
is a possible explanation. But the point is, if you don't restrict it to the good prognosis patients, it's apples to oranges. That was the first message. And the second message was, I agree, we've had a lot to learn about luteal phase response. We've been arguing about it even on this podcast. You know, um, how should we be giving progesterone and for how long and for when? And maybe we're not optimal and maybe natural is better than programmed. We, there's a lot of questions unknown, but you can't separate that in a trial like this. Every, right now, luteal phase support is different in a fresh versus a program cycle. It's just different. They go together. So, so it's not possible to control for different luteal phase protocols. And those are the messages in the letter to the editor. And um, I'm glad I can expound them in that letter, but also in this podcast, because no paper is going to give you all the answers. And I really encourage people to share those questions that they have, whether the author can respond to them or not. So what do you think about those arguments and, and, uh, and my response? I think they're all great points. And I think that we need to do more research that is less reliant upon RCT data. So I do think that finding creative ways to look at data that already exist and study it, uh, I think is going to be a really critical way to move forward without an over-reliance upon funding. So keep the letters coming, keep the papers coming. I think this was a wonderful podcast um, in terms of what we covered. We covered the spectrum from nutraceuticals to randomized trials to meta-analyses to all sorts of Nuclear transfer. (laughs) Nuclear transfer. So tell your friends and come back and listen to us again. Yeah. Never a dull moment on this podcast. So thank you, Kurt. Thank you, Pietro. And thank you listeners for a wonderful podcast. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Molly Cornfield. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.